0: Section eight of Take It From Dad by George G Livermore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section eight letters of March twentieth and March twenty eighth Lynn mass, March twentieth nineteen something. Dear Ted, you didn't have to write me that those boys you brought home with you on last Sunday were wonders. They told me so themselves. Seriously, Ted, they didn't make much of a hit with me. I don't mind a young fellow holding up his head. It's a sign of spirit, the same as it is in a horse. No man who wears his chin on his vest gets far in life, and no one but a tin horn who's trying to throw a bluff he can ride wants a horse that hangs its head between its knees. But neither have I much use for the young chap, whose nose is forever pointing skyward as though he were marching along the edge of a tanning-bat on a hot summer day spirit's all right now that we have prohibition but superiority of manner isn't if you really are a man's superior he knows it and if you aren't and try to act as if you are he's liable to laugh at you and by superior i mean superior in brains or ability to accomplish worthwhile things now one of your friends thought he'd impress me by saying that he was descended from the earl of hampton and he didn't like it a bit when I told him I wouldn't hold that up against him, and that for all I knew the earl might have been perfectly respectable. He also said his ancestors came over on the Mayflower, and wanted to know if any of my family had crossed on the same ship, and I'll bet he thought I was impossible when I told him it was more likely to have been the cauliflower, for the souls were always fond of New England boiled dinners. The other was money superior from what he said, I learned that his dad had made a mint out of raincoat contracts during the war, and has ever since been setting up autos for the family like the lumberjacks used to set up drinks for the crowd in Pat Healy's saloon on pay night. Money's a mighty useful article to have around these days, and it's nothing against a man if he has plenty of it, nor is it to his discredit if he hasn't and ancestors don't do a fellow any harm if he keeps remembering they're dead and can't help him earn a living money will buy many things worth having but not the things most worth while for a poor man with a reputation for keeping his word is a better citizen any day than a millionaire who's a liar and i'd much rather have a young man on my payroll whose family came over in the steerage and hasn't a grudge against work than a fellow who can trace his ancestry back to the peerage and is trying to get by on dead men's reputations now don't think i'm down on millionaires i'm not some of the biggest men in this country are also the richest but when you and i took that trip to washington the men whose statues we saw in the hall of fame were not honoured by their states for the money they had made but for what they had done and i didn't notice any inscription reading john jenkins stewart great-grandson of the second assistant royal bartender it's usually a poor plan to criticise a person's friends but i'm going to do that very thing in regard to yours for i've had considerable more experience than you and i know how dangerous the wrong kind of friends are the right kind of friends never did anyone any harm and the wrong kind never did anyone any good and take it from me son The two boys you brought home over the weekend are not the right kind. Unless I'm much mistaken, one will try to get by on his ancestors' reputation, and the other on his father's money, and neither will be classed among the three hundred hitters when the great umpire calls them out. You don't have to be ashamed of your ancestors, or my money, and it did me a world of good to overhear you say to young raincoats that I might not have made a million out of the war, but there wasn't a leather company in the country which wouldn't sell me any amount of stock I cared to order. That's the sort of reputation I've always tried to deserve. It's the aim of every decent American businessman, but just the same, it's fine to feel my only kids as proud of it as I am. Now, I've met several of your schoolmates I'd sooner tie up to than the boys you exhibited. That roommate of yours, for instance, he's pretty green yet, and his taste in neckties is awful, although it's improving. But I'll bet that ten years from now you'll be more proud of what he's accomplished than he will of what you've done, unless you scratch considerable dirt in the meantime. That other boy, the dark-haired one from Virginia, he'll get on, too. He's worth while. Cultivate him." When I was a little older than you, I once made a mistake in a friend that had mighty serious results, and I don't want you running the same risks. It was when I was working in the Epping National Bank that a pretty slick fellow by the name of J. Peters Welford blew into town, hired two rooms at the mansion-house, and the best rig Sol Higgins had in his livery-stable, and settled down to live the life of a gentleman of leisure now every man in epping worked except george baines the town half-wit and jim spencer the town drunk and a person who laboured neither with his hands nor brains was considered not quite respectable j peters however didn't get drunk and he had a wit that was sharper than a new-honed razor and as he wasn't curious paid his bills and seemed to mind his business and no one else's besides having faultless manners, and a pocketful of ready money. The younger folks, after a short period of probation, welcomed him with open arms. He never made much of a hit with the old people, and as I look back I can see it was their intuition, gained by hard experience, that warned them that J. Peters was not all he seemed, although at the time I put it down to pure envy. From the first, J. Peters, who was at least fifteen years older, took a great fancy to me he was forever hanging round the bank inviting me to dinner at the mansion house driving me about the country and going fishing with me on saturday afternoons j peters was extremely well read seemed to have travelled everywhere and knew men intimately whose names in the financial world were all majestic i thought j peters a whale of a chap and tried in every possible way to imitate him even to copying so far as i was able his slow drawling way of speaking my father couldn't see j peters with a spy-glass but neither could he prove anything to his discredit and as i was then at the beautiful age of eighteen when one knows so much more than he ever does again my father's warnings flowed out of my ears like water from a sieve one day six months after j peters had arrived in epping he proposed that i accompany him on a week-end trip to boston which i was crazy to do but had to refuse on account of my finances being at low tide j peters wouldn't take no for an answer however and finally persuaded me to go as his guest we were to take the noon train on a friday but when thursday night came he called to me from the piazza of the mansion house as i was on my way home from work and told me that something had come up which would prevent his going until Saturday. He pushed a roll of bills into my hands, telling me to go as we had planned, engage rooms at the American house, buy theatre tickets for Saturday evening, and wait for him as he would follow on the Saturday noon train. His story sounded plausible enough, so I followed his directions, and had a gorgeous time until six o'clock Saturday evening came, and with it no J. Peters. I waited for him in the lobby of the hotel until midnight, and then went to bed feeling he must have missed his train but would show up the next day. He didn't, though, and I spent Sunday roaming around the city, seeing the sights, returning to the hotel for supper. Just as I was pushing my way through the front door, someone grabbed me, then I felt something cold and steely clasped around my wrists and looking up saw Hen Winters, the sheriff of Epping County, scowling down at me. When I recovered enough from my fright to understand what it all meant, I learned that I was wanted for stealing $20,000 in cash from the Epping National Bank, and that explanations were out of order. The bank had been robbed, J. Peters and I were missing, and the mere fact that all the money Hen found in my pockets, after a painstaking search, amounted to $9.75 didn't get me anywhere, for my intimacy with J. Peters was known to everyone in town. Back I went to Epping handcuffed to hen, and the fact that we reached home late when no one was at the station to see us was all that kept my faults from dying of shame. My father stood my bail, and in a few days the detectives put matters straight by discovering that on the night I left for Boston, J. Peters alone had robbed the bank, and made good his escape to Canada. And, believe me, Ted, until that mess was cleaned up, I felt about as joyful as a leather merchant who's carrying a big stock in a falling market. Now, I don't believe for a minute that either of those boys you brought home with you over Sunday will turn out to be a J. Peters, It takes brains to be a successful bank robber, and in my estimation neither has enough of that commodity to head the lowest class in a school for feeble-minded. But I do think they have enough nonsense in their heads to get you into a peck of trouble if you continue to run with them, so if I were you, I'd cut them out. At the best those boys may be harmless. There are a lot of things that don't do a man any particular harm, but life is only a short stretch. So why clutter it up with a lot of harmless things, when every young American has the opportunity to enrich it with what is really worthwhile? The friends you make during the next few years will be your friends through life, and if I were you, I'd select them as carefully as you do your neckties, for they will wear much longer. Your Affectionate Father, William Soule Lynn Mass, March twenty-eighth, 19-something dear ted don't think that the old man has set up as a sort of a composite wiseacre who believes he knows more than solomon socrates and company a man can't knock around the shoe trade for thirty odd years without picking up a pretty general line of useful knowledge and if he has a son it's kind of up to him to see that the boy gets the benefit of what his dad learned in the school of hard knocks THAT'S WHY I HAVE TRIED TO GIVE YOU SOME HINTS IN MY LETTERS IN REGARD TO CERTAIN THINGS I WOULD NOT DO. BETTING IS ONE OF THEM. WHEN I READ YOUR LAST LETTER, IN WHICH YOU SAID YOU CLEANED UP TWENTY BUCKS ON THE INDOOR GAMES, I REALIZED THAT ALTHOUGH YOU WERE NOT YET SLITHERING DOWN THE GREASED TOBOGGAN SLIDE TO PERDITION, IT WOULDN'T DO ANY HARM TO HAND OUT A LITTLE ADVICE YOU CAN USE AS A SORT OF sandpaper SEAT TO YOUR PANTS, TO KEEP YOU FROM EXCEEDING THE SPEED-LIMIT. Speaking of sandpaper, reminds me of something that happened one year on the train coming home from the shoe and leather fair at St. Louis, and as I have a few minutes before Miss Sweeney brings in the figures on that last shipment of the company's leather, I'll pass it on to you for what it's worth. I was in the observation car, trying to write a few letters amid the chatter of a group of red-hot sports, who I judged from their remarks were on the way home from playing the races at New Orleans one young fellow, in a sunset suit, was particularly noisy. Every few minutes he would draw a huge wad of bills out of his pocket, and waving them under his friend's noses would boast of what he was going to do to Wall Street when he hit little old New York. Now, I have considerable respect for Wall Street's ability to take care of itself and somehow I couldn't picture all the old bulls and bears putting up the shutters and hiking for the tall grass, when that particular youth who had a chin like a fish's landed in their midst. The train stopped at a small town, and an old man who looked like the greenest rube in captivity came into the car. He sat down opposite the bunch of sports, and pulling a country newspaper out of his pocket buried himself in its pages from where i sat i could see the sporting fraternity sizing him up and presently the young loudmouth crossed over and sat down beside him nice country around here uncle young Freshy began sure is the old farmer answered so durned fine i hate to leave it i've been here nigh on forty years and i hain't left bington more'n twice I sold the old farm a short spell back, and I'm going to Chicago now to live with a grand "'Have a cigar?' asked the young sport. "'Don't care if I do,' replied the farmer, biting off the end, and taking one of the safety matches from a holder on the wall of the car, he tried to strike it on the sole of his boot. Now at that time, safety matches had not been used to any great extent— still i didn't suppose it was possible there was any one who did not know what they were although i knew that in some of those small mountain towns away from the railroad the people were said to be a hundred years behind the times when the old man tried to scratch another and then a third i was convinced he'd never heard of or seen a safety match and i wondered what he'd do next powerful poor matches these be he said with a grunt, as he reached for a fourth and attempted to light it on the leg of his trousers. A crafty, cunning look spread over the young sport's weak face. "'You can't light those matches that way,' he said. "'I'll bet I can,' the old man replied doggedly, making his fifth unsuccessful attempt. "'What will you bet?' the young fellow asked, quickly, an evil light gleaming in his fishy eyes. "'Well, I never yet seen a match I couldn't light on my pants. I'll bet you a quarter.' The young man fished out his wad of bills. "'I'm no tin-horn,' he replied with a sneer, "'but if you want to lose your money, I'll bet you one hundred dollars you can't light one of those matches on your trousers.' Land sakes!' cried the old farmer. "'A hundred dollars?' "'That's what I said,' replied the young fellow, grinning at his pals this gentleman will hold the money,' he continued, peeling off a hundred-dollar bill from his roll and thrusting it into my hands. I had just about decided to spoil the game with a little history on safety-matches, when the old farmer, who had been fishing around in his wallet, darted a shrewd glance at me, then deliberately winked. Finally he counted out one hundred dollars in small bills, which he handed over to me, grabbed a safety-match from the container rubbed it on the leg of his trousers, and when, to my astonishment, it burst into flame, calmly lighted his cigar, and held out his hand for the two hundred dollars which I passed over to him. Later, in the pullman, as the old fellow was mooching by my chair, he raised his coat enough to show me the side of a safety match-box, sewed to the leg of his trousers. Now the only trouble with betting, Ted, is that it's wrong. It's wrong for several reasons first because it's trying to get something for nothing second because a man always loses when he can't afford it third because gambling of any kind will sooner or later get a young fellow into the kind of company he don't want to introduce to his folks fourth because if a fellow sticks to gambling all his life he's pretty sure to die in the neighbourhood of the poorhouse and fifth no matter how slick a gambler you become you will always meet a slicker one, who will trim you to a fare-the-well. It's fine to back your teams to the limit, and I'd think you a pretty poor sort of a stick, if you didn't yell your head off at a game. But do you think it helps to steady a player's nerve in a pinch, to know that if he doesn't deliver, his schoolmates will have to live on snowballs, or some other light refreshment for a couple of months? No, Ted, old scout, betting is not only wrong. It's foolish. Your affectionate father, William Sol. End of section 8